Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Hello, dear ones. Well, today we will continue our newest series, Ask Louise, in which we spend some time together in conversation with someone in the Blink of an Eye community and share knowledge from experience intended to inform you and provide a richer understanding of spinal cord injury and trauma and the healing process in all its dimensions and complexity. This series is really a celebration of spinal cord injury success, the ways in which everyday vibrant people have navigated their way through the SCI crisis. And this series includes you, dear listener, who have joined us on this trauma healing journey. We want to honor your curiosity and those questions you send me as we take some time to be in conversation with those from the School of Real Life Setbacks and Breakthroughs. If you have questions related to spinal cord injury, trauma healing, or relational approaches for navigating SCI recovery and rehabilitation, please don't hesitate to reach out to me by email at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com. While we are in the process of inviting those with SCI experience into this series to hear their wisdom, we want to respond to your questions and expand our collective toolkit of tips and how-tos for responding to crisis and traumatic injury events. Today, we are going to dive in with Kim Hogue, whom you might remember from the Blink of an Eye story, episode 16, in which she provided me much-needed support in the form of late-night phone calls when I was at the Shepherd Center and at my wit's end, looking for someone who had been there too. In many ways, my experience with Kim and the support she provided me was part of the inspiration for the Blink of an Eye nonprofit we launched to serve families 24-7 in the first hours, days, and weeks of crisis, providing emotional support and practical navigation tips for how to negotiate with medical staff for the best care of an SCI injury and how to negotiate with rehab staff when the patient is presenting with more complicated secondary issues in a very complicated recovery. You'll hear us discuss best practices for engaging and best practices for how you might provide support for families in the journey of SCI recovery, as well as important lessons 
we've learned that together may be helpful for you whatever traumatic medical crisis you might face. Well, welcome to the second installment of our Ask Louise series, Meeting Families Where They Are in Recovery, with Kim Hogue. Settle in. Take a deep breath. And feel the energy of the collective community we are creating together in this moment. Here we go. I am blessed to introduce you to Kim Hogue. Kim is a flight attendant and the mother of Tyler, who is a quadriplegic and was injured in 2011. It was Kim who reached out to me, mother to mother, at a very dark time for me when I was with Archer at the Shepherd Center in rehabilitation in the fall of 2015. And it's a connection I will never forget. So thank you, Kim. My pleasure. And welcome. Thank you. I thought we might learn a bit about you more than what I know, and also let's cover some of what I know. But if you could tell our listeners a bit about your family experience with spinal cord injury, uh, when it was, how it happened, and in a nutshell, if there is such a thing, um, what the experience was like for you. We had gone up for Tyler's 17th birthday gone up in the mountains to go camping and off-roading. He had four friends with him. He was in his own Jeep. My husband and I and two of his friends were in uh, my husband's Jeep right in front of them. Just did, you know, the normal stuff. We had finished off-roading, had finished the hard part. We're coming down just a dirt road, normal mountain dirt road. Actually, it could have been a normal back road. It wasn't a steep road or anything like that. Tyler's Jeep hit a little bit of what they call a wash, which is just like um, an indent where the water comes down off the mountain, hits a, you know, the dirt road makes it a little indent. And because of Tyler's height at the time, he was like 6'2", six, 6'3", six, his chair was pushed all the way under what we thought was a roll bar. Turns out it was not a roll bar. It was a speaker bar. And so when Tyler's Jeep caught a little bit of air from that, that wash and land it, as Jeeps do, they're made to do that. The seatbelt held him upright, and that speaker bar came down and compressed his head. So he immediately was injured at that point. He broke, he, he had a, I think they call it a burst uh, at three, four, and five, C3 and four, five. He knew he was paralyzed, couldn't do anything to stop the Jeep, so the Jeep flipped upside down. Kind of a blessing, because it held him upside down in that seatbelt. So it decompressed his spinal cord, so it never severed. So he has, uh, he's incomplete. So 
you know, he has the scar tissue and all that, but the spinal cord itself wasn't severed. My husband saw the accident because he was looking in the rearview mirror. I heard the Jeep leave the ground. We were both at his side within seconds. He never lost consciousness. He knew he was paralyzed right away. He responded as a lot of people would saying, you know, hey, if I'm paralyzed, just let me die. I don't, I don't want to live that life. Then it, then it became weird because you don't really remember what happened. I know there was fight for life. I know there was an ambulance. There were a lot of tears. But Tyler and I weren't crying because I, I was just like zeroed in on what he needed. Because that's, you know, as a parent, that's all that matters, what your kid needs. And then we were on our way to one hospital. I was in the ambulance. Tyler was in flight for life. Michael was following, that's my husband, was following behind in his Jeep with the other two kids that weren't in the car with Tyler. And all of a sudden, we were going to a different hospital. So I was like, ooh, that's not good (laughs) if they're going to whatever hospital is closest. We ended up at St. Anthony's, which was the closer hospital. The two boys that were in the Jeep with Tyler both got released. One of them had, they thought maybe a sprain in his wrist, but, you know, nothing really injurious. They were released, but Tyler would not allow them to do any surgery on him until all of his friends came back and he could see that they were fine before he was willing to go in for surgery. And so then he went in for surgery and he was in ICU there for a little under three weeks with all of the everything, right? All of the tubes and the drugs and the, the psychosis, you know, that just it, it, and learning all of the new things. When Tyler went in, he could speak of his own volition. He could breathe of his own volition. During the surgery, they intubated him. So he came out, he couldn't speak, and Tyler's always been rather chatty. So that was going to be an issue, and, and we worked a way around that. But immediately what we did was Michael and I started dividing up what needed to be done. I was going to be the heart, Michael was going to be the brain, and then we had all of our people, friends, family, strangers, that just became a part of our group, and everybody just started doing what we asked them to do. Michael's job with his father was to go find a rehab place. And they, the, I think it was the second or the third day, jumped on an airplane and they went to Kennedy Krieger, to Craig, and to Shepard. Kennedy Krieger's in Baltimore, if you're not familiar. And then Craig is in um, Colorado. We chose Shepard because of its adolescent unit. And we thought it would be easiest and best for Tyler to be around people his own age going through this. And we did the medical flight to Shepard. And then he was there for three months and he left and he went back uh, to Colorado. We had to move at the time because the house we were in, we were renting. And originally they had said that we could buy the house Originally, they said we could make the changes, and then in a couple of years, because we had like a three or four year lease on it, in a couple of years, we could either return the house to its original form, you know, take the elevator and all the changes we were going to have to make, or we could buy the house outright at that point. So we were like, that's fantastic. Super excited about that. And then, like, gosh, 
Three, four weeks later, they rescinded that. And they said we had to buy the house outright or we had to get out. Yeah, and we were living at the time, all of us, uh, on and off in Atlanta. Michael and I would leapfrog so that our youngest son, Thomas, and then our Italian son, Davide, he was one of he was in the Jeep with Tyler. He didn't get injured. He's the one that they think had a sprained wrist. So one adult was always home with them. But then we also had family members and friends and neighbors that would come over and hang out with the boys if Michael and I both needed to be at Shepherd for any reason. And so then we found out that we had to get a new house. And so luckily a friend of Michael's from like junior high school happened to be building in one town over because we wanted Tyler to be able to, you know, have as much normalcy as possible. So graduate from his high school. He was a junior at the time. Um, and so this gentleman offered a plot and to build the house and he put like two or three crews on it and they built the house in less than 90 days. So we were able to move into that in January. Then he graduated high school. Then he went to North Carolina to get his undergrad in communications. And then he went to Southern Cal to get his master's in screenwriting. And, um, you know, he was always going to go away to school anyway. He was never going to stay in Colorado. And so this didn't stop him from doing that. That was still the plan. He just changed which college he was going to go to instead. It's really just so amazing to me because I feel so connected to you because of the solace that you gave me in the crisis and knew nothing about your own arc of the story. Mm-hmm. And as I listen to you today, seven years later, for us knowing each other, but 11 years later for you, Archer was injured on his approximate 17th birthday. He had yeah. just turned 17. Um, it was you know, during a sports event, if you will, athletic. They're just, you know, doing their thing at six foot three. He also was a burst injury, C2 to C5. He too knew immediately that he was paralyzed. He was, unfortunately, a complete, and our listeners probably or perhaps don't know the difference, but it's a major difference in spinal cord injury, as we know, as parents. Do you want to share and educate our listeners the difference between a complete spinal cord injury and an incomplete spinal cord injury? Well, as I understand it, um, the difference is the severing of the cord. And so that the, the body responds differently there in an incomplete. Obviously, I know that a little bit better because that's Tyler. Tyler's spinal cord was twisted and pulled, and that caused scar tissue to build up around it. And that's why Tyler's impulses get through a little bit. His electrical impulses from his brain can get through a little bit. So he can move a little bit of a finger, a little bit of a toe, a little bit of an arm. His diaphragm works fine, which for our kids' level injury is a lot of times not the case. A lot of times they can't breathe on their own. Whereas a complete is the severing of the spinal cord. And so the 
there is no way for the electrical impulse to get through. It can't, it can't jump that space. Yeah. So. yeah. So those electrical impulses are still kind of going beep, beep, but there's no place to go. There's no conduit to take it. And that's what we experience. So Archer doesn't have uh, those uh, little impulses or anything in his finger or, or hand or whatever it is. It's fascinating, though, the biggest issue being diaphragm, that there's not enough electrical juice to lift his diaphragm that then, of course, allows the lungs to expand. So the biggest issue for him as a complete burst is breathing. The incredible likenesses, though, of, of the injuries, the age, August. You guys, you said August 28th. We were mm-hmm. August the 5th. And this experience that you had of just zeroing in, uh, it's something that I have just called tunnel vision as one response, as you just mentioned. It's just one response, but it is one that a number of spinal cord injury parents or parents in any crisis about their children find themselves in. You're just totally focused, zeroed in on what needs to happen. And and anything else is superfluous if it doesn't fit what is necessary for that. I'd like to explore when you mentioned the three weeks, if you have any real particular recollections about the tubes and the drugs and just the sort of psychosis that you speak about. And then, of course, the inability to speak. But what was that like and what did you find? That's one of the things that I would like to see um, the SCI community do a better job at preparing people for. Because the SCI community didn't really reach out to us. We reached out to them. I, I had such issues with the hospital for those three weeks. They know we're traumatized. They've seen this trauma before. I've never experienced it before. I would have liked to have some kind of an advocate there, some kind of uh, just a, a personal approach rather than constantly everybody being medical and detached about everything because it that's my kid. I'm not detached. I'm not. And I don't know the medical terms that you're using. Yes. Stop using all these big, big words. Stop, stop telling me that there's only one way that my kid can survive this and get through it. I understand where they're coming from. I, I just needed somebody to be a little more gentle, a little more human. A, a little more trauma informed. Yeah. Yeah, because that's where you and I met on the grid at your experience of having been very often at, at cross purposes with the medical team and my finding myself in the exact same yeah. situation. And, you know, I, I remember the first time, which was like the second day of Archer's injury when the surgeon said, Mrs. Sempt, your son is a quadriplegic. And I was like, oh, a what? I hadn't even heard the word quadriplegic. I didn't even know how to spell it kind of thing, not to mention all the other 
medical pieces. And I too would have begged for a personal advocate. And there wasn't one, but there was you. And similar to the ways I think that you and Michael divided your roles, where Michael was, as you said, you know, the brains and you were the heart. By the way, um, in my study of neuroscience and trauma and trauma healing, by the by, it might be of, of interest to you, the heart is actually the stronger brain um, yeah. than the cognitive. I mean, and we think about it, right? We can uh, be brain dead and still alive, but if our hearts uh, stop beating, uh, we're not alive anymore. Right. But, but the way that you and Michael divided your roles in, in a number of ways, you were the heart for me. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. You really were, because it was in the late nights and even into the wee hours when Mm -hmm. you would allow me to call you, you would text me. And then on some occasion, I would text you because you said, you call me any time. I have been there. And I was in, I was so upside down and so beside myself and grasping at straws. And I'm articulate and I'm smart and I know how to negotiate. And I've been a professional woman just like you. It didn't matter. I mean, those things were good. They, they yeah. did matter. But my state was such where I was so helpless and feeling so powerless when the prognosis was that my son would never breathe again on his own. He was going to be on this ventilator for the rest of his life. And they were going to kick us out of rehab because he wasn't good enough, you know, to do the rehab. It was just so unfathomable to me. And nobody was there for, for us. But, but what we were there, you were there for me. It's nice to have that that person that can reach out. It's definitely nice and it's more than nice. It's almost essential. It's like breathing fresh air. Yeah. Yeah. That is, by the way, what the nonprofit that we have begun, Blink of an Eye, is doing. We have a family Uh, support and navigation team. And you... Perhaps didn't know that, but you were part of the inspiration from my own experience for how it is that we can help spinal cord injured families in the first 30 days. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, in the crisis. And no one is serving that in such an obvious gap. And, right. um, yeah, it is. In fact, of the spine surgeons uh, whom we've talked with and of those who are in ICUs who have spinal cord injury expertise, which are, who are few, actually, they're all like, this is so obvious to us. Why didn't we see it before? Yeah. And, and as you said, it, when they're speaking to you in medical speak, and they know that we are in trauma, it's simply the response that the medical teams give. It's not that it's wrong. It's right. just incomplete. It's That's just, a perfect word for it. But yeah, because you're left wanting. You're like, 
You're giving me so much information, but I don't understand it. And I, I don't have the wherewithal to, to essentially dumb it down for myself. Exactly. And I, prob- and I probably don't have the wherewithal to absorb it. And yeah. fully understand it, even if you do break it down. But I do need to start with it being broken down. Yeah. So, yeah. so you know what else Blink of an Eye is doing for that very reason? What's that? We're starting a national digital resource library that oh, amalgamates what families need to know in the first 15 hours, spinal cord injury families, the first three days, the first yeah. four to seven days, the first eight to 11 days and 12 to 15 days and 16 to 30 days, you know, what you need to know, what you don't need to know right now, what you need to start thinking about, what you don't need to be thinking about right now, Yeah. what to ask, what to let go of, what to let go of. You know, that's, I, I don't know if you know the Sidnors, but yes. that's, so Cole was there just a couple of weeks before Tyler got there. And I remember my husband saying to me, you're going to love the Sidnors. You're just, you know, and so I walked in and I will tell you, I do love them. They're still some of my best friends. I adore them. I go visit them a few times a year. Cole and his wife, Charisma, live out here. Tyler and I go to dinner with them when I'm in town and such. So still really connected. But I will tell you what I love about what you're doing is that for me, that would have helped bridge a gap because when I got there and I met the Sidnors, they were sad and I was not sad. I didn't, I didn't know to be sad and I didn't know that it was okay that they were sad. That, you know, they got to move through it however they were going to move through it and I could still move through it how, but it made me feel bad. It made me feel guilty. I was like, what's wrong with me? That, that they're sad and I'm not. And also it made me not really want to reach out to them because I'm like, clearly we're having a different experience because we're responding so differently. And what you're explaining to me, you guys are doing and going to do in the future as well will really help bridge that gap because somebody can go on and they can realize it's going to be a different reaction from everybody. Exactly. And yeah. It doesn't mean that you're doing it right, wrong, or indifferent. You're just finding your way. You're doing the best you can. That's exactly right. In fact, our team, our navigators, we are training them not only in the neutral skills of a transformative mediator, how to navigate, how to empower without taking away decision-making, but also how to be more trauma-informed. And we start with there are a number of different ways to walk through the trauma journey. Yeah. And for some, it has been said that it's a denial, you know, when there is just, there's moving through and there's going to have be, we're, we're going to have progress and, and Archer's going to walk again. And probably people were like, you know, she's a nutcase. But that's just the brain protecting us, doing the best it can. And in fact, it's a pretty intelligent response. It's as intelligent as the body that collapses and says, I need great care. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when we can begin to understand that about the central nervous system and, of course, flavored by different life experiences and personality, 
it can allow a much more compassionate response and a bridging of the gap. Yep. I love that you call them navigators. That's, that, that's perfection. Because that's, <laughs> that's what it is. It is finding your way. You can see the horizon, but you're like, how do I get there? You know, is there only this way? Or can I go this way and get there that way? Is that a gentler way for me and for my people? You know, you are bringing up a very strong memory for me right now. I can, I can hear your voice where I was so distraught that nobody believed or saw what I saw, that Archer Sempt could breathe on his own. If you could just give us help here to have him breathe on his own, then he can do all that rehab. But I saw the rehab being for him to breathe on his own. And I remember saying, isn't there any other way? And you saying, there are multiple ways. There are multiple ways. Find your voice. Yeah. It was just really, really beautiful. Thank you. You know, this piece about how difficult it may have been for you to have been with the Sidnors, and I too just love Kelly, and she reached out, and and she's part of Blink of an Eye and our nonprofit, and it's really beautiful, and being with the dear Cole and Charisma before they were married, to see Uh them together, and, and understanding how that relationship came to pass. It was so joyful. The irony is that when I was introduced at that point, I then was very sad. And they were having all these amazing experiences that we we were not, or I had hoped that we would, but I didn't know. And so one of the learnings for our own navigators at Blink of an Eye is that we've surrounded the team, the family support and navigation team of navigators with their own trauma care circle to help not only the families and to be the resources for the families, but to help the navigators as they hit a tender spot. You know, like yeah. I can't, this, this family is so helpful to me, but I can't be with them. They're just too sad. Or this family is so positive and things are happening with their son and he's starting to take some walks. And it's eight years later for me and my son's still paralyzed from the neck on down. And the, right. you know, the gut punch that that is. So we're really working it from the inside out with the Blink of an Eye Navigator team. Oh, that's amazing. I can't wait to be a part of it. Yeah, thank you. We can't wait to have you a part of it. It's a constant learning experience, you know? Oh, yeah. Even yeah. still. Even, even still. And, you know, there are these things about trauma. I had been, as a conflict transformative mediator, I had begun to teach trauma because I was just interested in the conflict experience on the body. And I began to sort of do my own little foray into neuroscience before Archer was injured. Maybe I'd been at it for five years or so. And then when Arch was injured, I had just enough information when I was not in shock, which was days, weeks, months later, 
to observe myself and, and to realize that I was in shock. I am experiencing trauma, which is a really interesting place to be where you're observing yourself. But what I've learned subsequently now on this blink of an eye journey is how much of the trauma experience is this constant unlayering every year, every few months, every five years. There's a new little piece that emerges that we can respond to in the same kind of ways with curiosity and a lot of personal advocacy and gentleness. Yeah. And gentleness. I think that that's one of the things that I've learned the most over the years. And I say it to other people now, when are you going to give yourself the grace that you afford other people? Because I think that we forget to give ourselves that grace. I I can talk to somebody about what's going on or frustrations or help them find their way and then hang up the phone and be like, wait a minute, I I should probably follow my own advice right there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really powerful. I think when we, well, as humans, we do have this amazing capacity as best we know that animals don't have to be self-reflective. And in that moment, like the one you just described, when we are a good advocate or a good listener or a good advice giver or whatever it is, and then, then the insight is, hmm, am I living into that Yeah, for, right. my, for myself? Yeah, because we still get caught up in the moment. They'll go into that survival mode. What you talked about earlier, that tunnel vision that, okay, we just have to get through this. We just have to get over this hurdle, and then it'll be fine again. It'll be smooth sailing again. When it's not smooth sailing, and I think you and I have had so a number of very similar experiences back in the hospital, the ICU, with our sons. If we could, can we go back to that? I, I think there might be, I'm really curious. Do you remember what some of the conflicts, getting crosswise, what they were about? And, and that's actually not the most important piece, but. What was it really about that you were at cross purposes? Because I'd love to compare some, some notes here. There might be some real learnings for families and for medical staff listening in. Um, also understand, I, I don't know if Archer is in and out of the hospital, but especially for, gosh, the last year and a half, two years, Tyler's been in and out of the hospital on almost monthly basis. So uh, let's just was- pause so that people have a context for that. Tyler's been out from his injury. It's been 11 years. Mm-hmm. And the last year and a half or so, he's been back in and out of yeah. the hospital. Okay. Yeah. But I'll go back to the beginning. So at the first hospital that he was at, the ICU, like I said, it was people coming in and using big words and telling me things as if I knew what they were talking about. They didn't respect the fact that I had set a tone for Tyler's room. Tyler was not immediately depressed, so I didn't want him on antidepressants because Tyler didn't want to be on antidepressants. He was stuck in this room and couldn't see sunshine, and he was always an outdoor kid. And so 
I wanted to take him outside, and they said I couldn't do that. And I got to the point, I, I tried to work within all of the rules that they gave me. Can't have more than one person in a room. He can't have this to eat. You can't have TV on, you know, whatever their, their rules were. And I was like, I, I get why you're saying those things, but understand this is where my boy is living right now. And he has a brand new life. I'm going to let him have some of the things that bring him comfort. And if you don't like that, I understand, but I do not care. And I will be as quiet about it as possible. But I, at one point, like with going outside, I said, look, here's the deal. I'm going to connect him from these machines and roll this bed out of here to get him in the sunshine. You can come with me and make sure I do it right, or you can get out of my way. But that is what's happening next, because that's what he's, he needed. We he were needed- very much cut from the same cloth on the yeah. rules. I, I'm, I respect rules. In fact, I think it's uh, one of the great aspects of you know, being a democracy, right? People get to make right. the rules for the people, by the people, for the people, at least, you know, in concept. I found that so many of the rules in the hospitals and the ICUs were for the benefit of the medical staff and team to make things as easy as possible for them. And I was beginning to take on a view that it was the least amount of energy put in to the quality of life for the patient. And it was limited to also like just the medicine. And so I would sit there and and in my brain, I would be saying, I get it. I understand. And I could even say it might be around safety. Um, You know, one person in the room, nobody else can come after, you know, 10 o'clock at night. Um, Can't have uh, flowers in the room. Um, can't, you know, just one thing after another. And I own that I could feel myself really getting revved up almost on my high horse. Like, do you, have you lost your sense of mission on healing, on quality of life? And I think that actually is where the conversation could be around the quality of a hospital room. For us, it was also creating a healing sanctuary with soft music, bright light, to turn off the, the bright lights at night so we could actually reinstitute Archer's circadian rhythm and up right. with the shades and pushing his bed towards the window as opposed to having the head of a bed where the window's behind him. I mean, what, what sense is that? What, people in the hallway can see a window? So right. we were often at odds in those ways. and as negotiating as I thought I might be able to be and transformative, it was constantly creating waves and friction because yeah. it was quote unquote against the rules. And I don't, I don't do a lot of negotiating as a person. Um, I follow most of the rules. If I disagree with them, I have a conversation and the bottom line is I decide whether or not whatever the ramifications of breaking that rule I decide whether it's worth breaking it. And so several times I I broke it. When I went to Shepherd, I broke rules for different reasons. Tyler was starting to heal and he was trying to figure out what his new normal was going to be. And he still wanted some of, of his past normalcy with him. So those were the rules that I broke. 
at Shepherd, it was, yeah, we snuck people in. We did too. We, we had kids spend the night with yeah. Archer in his room. I gave up my fold-out chair so that his high school friends could be there. I mean, like, are you kidding me? This is what matters the most to a 17-year-old. Like when Tyler was on the vent, and I don't know if they did this with Archer, but I assume so, you had to have a nurse go with you. To Everywhere. Leave yeah. Yeah, no, that wasn't a thing for me anymore. I'm like, we're done with that. Yeah. We're going out as a family with friends. And just check me out on it. Teach me how to use it. And I promise you, I'm not going to do anything that is going to make him go backwards. I had the exact same conversation. I said, I'm his mother. Do you think I would ever want to harm him? Show yeah. me. I can do that. Yep. Yeah. And then they started letting us check him out. And um, then we just did it. It wasn't. It wasn't a matter of checking him out. You know, Tyler's like, we loved the black bear across the street there from at the Shepherd Center. And Tyler's like, ooh, you know, I'd really, I really want to go get something from the black bear. And I'm like, off we go. That's beautiful. We yeah. never got that far. Um, although I discovered on one occasion because of meeting another family, the mellow mushroom, I think the original. Um, so I'll take that as a memory. If we look at, I think, the things that we did, and you pull each one out individually or you put them all together cumulatively, going outside, being with friends, having a meal with family, having some privacy with family or friends. I mean, isn't that what we now know is at the heart of trauma healing? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and honestly, one of the things that Tyler learned was in a, in a much smaller space to learn how to deal with people staring and people ignoring and people making him uncomfortable for something he was already uncomfortable about. But he got it in little doses so he could get used to it and acclimate himself. I think that's really important. You know, it really is. Have, um, there's something yeah. in the trauma field um, called titration. And it's actually where you go back uh, to your trauma, or in the case of Tyler and Archer, you experience the public in just little doses. Uh, the public, mm. it can be very cruel. Yes. And, you know, I so admire that aspect of your experience, and I will share with you, I'm a little green right now with some envy because we never got there. And so Archer never had the small little doses. He was able, after a year, to go back to his high school. He had missed his junior year, by and large, and then he was able to finish up with his senior year, and his school just received him with such love, and it was almost a cocoon that I'd say to this day, however, Archer has still not had that experience of small doses that build up into larger doses. It, it's more of a, even at the University of Pennsylvania, even at Penn, as an engineer, they would just ask why he couldn't get into a building through the back way where they bring in the food on that ramp. You know, he can't do a button. He can't do a card swipe. He can't do anything for a secured door and a number of the buildings, including all the freshman dorms, were not 
even accessible. And instead, he stayed back. He couldn't get in places, so he stayed back. So I think another aspect of rehabilitation for any spinal cord injured family is to do what you did in small, little, measured, incremental amounts, expose your loved one to the public with the staring and with the chairs having to be moved and the sighs and the people guffawing, you know, that it's going to, that someone coming through is going to take up their time because that, that is how it is. Yeah. Kind of tender. Yes. Because we're not allowed to just grab people by the shoulders and be like, stop. Can't you have compassion? Or don't you see him the way I see him? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's another thing about spinal cord injury that um, while there is, of course, TBI, traumatic brain injury that accompanies many spinal cord injuries, um, there's, there's a lot of spinal cord injuries that are so devastating, like Tyler's and, and Archer's that have no brain damage uh, by way of cognitive brain damage. And uh, it just, I think, in people's minds, as it was at Penn, people see someone in a power chair at that, not just a wheelchair, but a power chair, and not able to have your arms be moving. You don't even look like you're strong and athletic. And I think they immediately think you're, I mean, I don't know what's in their minds, but I can share from our experience that I think the brain chunks information like completely disabled, you know, does, not able to think um, as a really intelligent person. Yeah, we had a lot of people use the R word. And so um, that was something that we had to contend with because we were like, well, time out. First of all, not that there's anything wrong with that, but that completely no, like physically, sure. But just because he's in a chair doesn't mean his brain doesn't work. And I had to blame that to so many people. I'm like, I promise you, he is the same exact kid as he was six months ago, five, you know, whatever. His body just doesn't work. That's what Archer, Archer would keep saying that to me. I'm the same. He would blink it to me. I'm the same. Like it was part of his MO yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, Tyler ran his mouth before the accident. He runs his mouth after. He had dark <laughs> sense of humor then, dark sense of humor now. You know, and, and for me, that's probably because that's what God figured I could handle. Yeah. The personality had changed or the cognition had changed. I don't know that I would have been able to handle it. I don't know that. I was built for that. But just because your body doesn't work, I mean, for me, I'm like, eh, I mean, yeah, it's not cool. It's not fun, but that's not insurmountable to me. I do think there's a whole lot to say about the care team of family and friends around the person who is injured. And when they have the attitude, Kim, that you have, where it's, it's a body and, and it's, in some ways, just a body. We can celebrate our bodies. They're awesome. They move, they work, they give us pleasure, they take us places. It is also just a body. We have a heart and we have a mind. We have ideas and thoughts and creativity. 
and connection. Right. I right. think that's, that's... To me, that's the most important part of our beings. Yeah. This piece about others looking in and not being able to digest that someone is so physically injured or disabled and so mentally, cognitively, and emotionally with it, I found in the ICUs that that similar misalignment was happening with the nurses in seemingly small, even innocuous ways, but they were not. It would be things like they'd trip over Archer's tubes because there were so many. He had three chest tubes. He had the ventilator tubes. He had the oxygen tubes. Or they would miss stick him. They'd stick him a couple times, you know, taking blood. And, it was, and, and the comments that would be made is, don't worry, he doesn't feel it. And I was like, his body, don't you understand spinal cord injury? And this was just for me in the first couple of weeks, but I had grasped it enough, perhaps only purely out of love and respect for, for my son's beautiful body that his body did feel that. I would say cellular memory, but actually I wasn't even completely accurate then, although that is a piece. But one of the pieces that could be super helpful for anyone to understand about spinal cord injury is that the body, Tyler's body, Archer's body, still feels everything. Toes getting crunched, toes too tight in a pair of shoes, being strokes, being massaged, being kissed. The brain doesn't register it. But the body, the, the cells of the body, are still responding. Whether it's pain or whether it's pleasure, it's just not getting up to the brain. But if the body doesn't like it, autonomic dysreflexia absolutely sets in, which is, you know, the misalignment with the body not being able to regulate temperature, high blood pressure, et cetera. So it's just fascinating, isn't it? That even the medical teams just really couldn't pick that up and I remember talking to a nurse one time, and she's like, I know. I mean, do you think I don't know that? And yet the, the actions, you know, belied yeah. that. Yeah, your actions would say you don't know or you've forgotten. Yeah. So I'd like you to dial that back in, please. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and spinal cord injury is complicated. Yeah. You know, that's right. I mean, when Tyler was there, one of the quads literally walked out. Wow. As in like miracle. Like like he's still a quad, you know, he still has foot drop and he has problems with his arms and his hands, but his mom is just, he just so sweet. She, I think they live in, I think they live in St. Louis and um, I've gone to visit them a number of times. And it was just one of those things where to, to be sitting in a room with at that time, there were 13 kids and just ran the gamut i think six of them were quads and to have one of the quads walk out wow i mean people look at cole and they question they're like well you're not a quad you're a para he's like no i'm still a quad i still can't use 
my hands. I still can't get my feet to do what they're supposed to do. So that's, you know, people just don't understand that. And when you have medical people who are blasé about it, it's really a detriment. Because they're the people that at the beginning, your kid is also looking to. Yes. You know, they're like, wait a minute. They just said, I can't feel this, but my body reacted. I remember what it's like to get stuck by a needle and my arm just jumped that I can't make move on its own. So what you said and what I'm experiencing are not the same. That's right. I remember two of those times. I wish there were more, but the two were exciting for me and Archer and then painful because the medical team said, it's just a spasm. It's a complete involuntary spasm. And we were like, no, it's an electrical impulse. You know, there, there's still something there. And it was almost like, a, oh, you poor pitiful thing. I could see the look, you know, in yeah. the nurse's eyes. And, and, you know, one of the beautiful parts for us as navigators for these families is to say you can you keep on believing that it is an electrical impulse because that hopefulness will carry you into conversations so many times many times where you really are able to explore what's available in science um, and what is available through faith and through collective prayer and through all kinds of true healing modalities that have yeah. carried people through the eons of time. Yeah. Yeah. It was one that, um, so when Tyler got injured, he and I had a lot of really frank conversations. I was not in the you're going to walk or the you're never going to walk camp. I said to him, most likely before you're 30, you are most likely not going to be able to walk of your own volition. You are most likely not going to get into a long-term relationship. Um, You are going to have times when you're doing great and times when you're doing terrible. It's going to take you at least a decade to, to get comfortable and to figure this out. I had that conversation with him because everybody around us was in one of two camps. And I had to say to him, no, honey, there's, you're in the gamut. You're, you're in between. What gave you the wisdom, Kim, to have that conversation with Tyler? I have always tried to be really, really honest age appropriately uh, with my kids and to have honest, um, expectations of oneself and of other people. I I think it's really important to know what could be coming and then you can make a plan to go further, to figure out your way. And then you get to help other people do that as well. Once you get to that place, then you turn around and you put your hand back and you bring the other people with you. And that's, I mean, that's, and how the boys and I and Michael and, and, and everybody in my life. I mean, I, that is just what I believe to be true in my heart. I think that's what we're supposed to do as humans and as just loving beings, you know? Well, you certainly did that for me. Um, you and, and Michael, it was actually through Bernadette, who was in discussion with Michael, 
And I don't remember, for one reason or another, I thought he was on a board somewhere. Um, he was on the Christopher Reeve board. He was on the Christopher Reeve board. So this was a few years, um, I guess, from what you just shared with me today, four years after Tyler was injured. And Bernadette apparently told Michael about us at Shepherd, And Michael reached out to me. And in talking with Michael, he then, he put the heart component on. And that's how you and I got connected. So both of you were really doing the reaching back without a doubt. Yeah. And I love that you've created something that now it doesn't have to be just that we were fortunate enough that Bernadette put us together because all the poor people that didn't meet Bernadette, that didn't know so that she couldn't do that. You're bridging that gap. You're putting a resource space together. That's exactly right. And we are uh, not just you are now you are, you're with us. And that resource library, it will scale. So we might not be able to personally work for 30 days with 18,000 families a year because that's how many spinal cord injuries there are in the United States, not including any veterans or people at war. 18,000, and we will have a resource library that it will be accessible to all, including friends, right? What, what do I do? What do I say? What, what's well, the best way I can be helpful? Yeah, I had so many friends. Who, remember that, uh, that three-ring binder that Shepard gives you? That huge take, three-ring binder that's like yeah, about six inches thick? When you final cord 101. Yeah. Uh, the number of times that people would come over to my house, and they'd be like, oh, and they just start thumbing through it. That would be fantastic to just be able to go, here's a link. That's exactly right. We will, we will start putting a lot of that material and others in, into links. So Tyler, he was what Shepard would have called slow to wean. And so was Archer. Tyler was slow to, that's what they considered him, slow to wean. Yeah. Uh, he was terrified. He was so afraid because this machine was doing something that when he went to sleep, he was doing himself. When he woke up, he could no longer do. Um, and he could, that the whole not speaking thing. So to take those two things away from him, and, and they didn't tell us. And, and, and making him weaker. So the longer mm-hmm. he was on the ventilator uh, and the respirator, the weaker the body wanted to depend on that machine, which is what so many people don't realize about uh, the ventilator respirator. Yeah, because the body has so many other things going on. Yes. It's like, okay, this is being taken care of. Yes. We don't have to right. anymore. Right. Let's go with our, our healing journey here. Um, so yeah, that was, that was another thing that was really upsetting to me is like my son and to him. He went in breathing on his own and speaking on his own, and he came out not being able to do either one. And then his body also doesn't work. That's a little bit too much. Um, and he got scared. But we figured out what worked for him to wean him. And that, and actually, I have a really aggressive story around that. I was put out of his room 
because I was physically going to fight the person that came in to take out his trach thing because it was time. He'd, he'd passed all the tests and it was time. But they didn't go in and make sure that the skin was no longer attached to the little plastic tube. Mm. Oh. Rip it out. Exactly. Oh. Like, what? And I've never, even when Tyler was injured, I've never heard him make that noise. Oh, that, like oh that. my gosh, because it's like, it's like stuck to the plastic. I'm like, this isn't traumatizing enough. And she was doing it on a Friday afternoon and she just wanted to get it done and get it out of there. And I came unglued. My sweet disposition went right out the door and I, I physically went after her. And two nurses had to stand in between me. And I'm like, get her away from my son. Right. And they had to bring another person in because he didn't trust her. And he was traumatized. And I was going to fight her. Um, and I know I was a grown-up and I should have known better. But in that moment, I was, I, I just could not believe the lack of compassion and empathy and just respect the lack of that that she had for anyone, let alone a 17-year-old boy. That and and a lack of, of empathy for the pain that any human, let alone a young yeah. boy would be experiencing with those skin adhesions. That was not my finest moment, but I did get my point across. Well, you know, for what it's worth, it's possible you paved the way because I I don't know, but my sense was at the time that boys, the ages of our sons, not being weaned within the shepherd's magical promise of three days it was not their norm. They were used to being very successful. Mm-hmm. And Archer was on his, we, we left when Archer was still on event. So it had been many months. And you may have paved the way, however, because his trach, we would change it about, I, I'd have to look back in my notes, but I want to say something like every 21 days, or something like that, before the skin was completely adhered around the plastic tube. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, because that was not the case when we were there. Yeah. You know, something that was told to me back at Atlantic Care in New Jersey, which is where we started, you were at your hospital in Colorado when Mm -hmm. we were on the East Coast, in a hospital that was a level one trauma center, but that did not really have the spinal cord injury. You know, once the surgeon is imported in and then sort of imported out, the, the team, the staff, the nurses did not have the degree of spinal cord injury that, right. that we needed. And so just multiple errors and, and mistakes. And one of the really beautiful uh, parts without having to be too embittered or angry that has come out of Blink of an Eye podcast and interviewing uh, those, you know, signing releases that we wouldn't be suing and so forth, but able to now interview people on that staff is one of the lead doctors and now the head of the pulmonology group. I said that he has instituted so many new standards because of our experience. And when, I mean, we were a complete pain in the, 
in the neck, uh, ironically. It's a kind of a funny expression I just realized when I said that. Uh, you know, pain in the katush um, for them. And I was, we, were, we were at cross-purposes often and regularly. But to know that something good came out of that and that he had the, I would say, courage and vulnerability to tell me years later that, it, it, that what has happened was a direct result. And people still talk, you know, about Archer for all the things that happened that were horrible. It, that's, you know, that's reaching back. You were like, I don't want anybody else to have this experience. Right. Right. Well, and the doctors too, they, I think they realized they didn't want to have uh, anyone else have, have that experience. Not that it has been the be all end all, but I suppose that's, that's why if there's any meaning in suffering, it is that we can learn and be better and to help others through the experience. Yeah. Well, I thank you for helping for helping me. Well, I'm sorry that uh, we were both put in this awkward club that we're in. Yes, but I help, however, from whatever my experience is, so that somebody else doesn't. It, it might make their their journey just a little bit shorter, or a little bit gentler, or a little bit better. I I love the stories from other parents who to this day still giggle at some of the rules that I broke at Shepherd because they were like, oh, I can't believe you did that. And, and it makes them, it made their time there just a little bit better, you know, just a little bit more normal. Yeah. You know, we're going to, I'm going to close. I have a, I actually have a couple more things I wanted to ask you because it's so interesting. And of course we will be talking again, but I just want to share with you one of my favorite little rules that were, I broke at Shepherd was I am a firm believer in supplements and in probiotics and prebiotics and making sure there's good oh. gut health. <laughs> and I had a, a friend of mine from whom I also, a doctor whom I would get my supplements. And she said, you know, you can crush probiotic and put it in his feeding tube. Oh. So when I asked the medical staff, if we could do that, and at that point, Archer was in a peg, it was, you can't do that. But, right. but I, I saw the food that he was in, in the bag that he was getting, and it's not hard. You know, you just take out, everything's a tube that gets connected to another tube. So I crushed and put it on in, and I felt so satisfied because the, the amount of uh, not just narcotics that Archer did not want to be on antidepressants and without even asking me, and he was still a minor, they were putting him on antidepressants. That was a yeah, constant battle. But the amount of antibiotics that would just bottom him out anytime yeah. that we even talked about maybe going outside, you know, he had to be on another round of antibiotics. So that's my little, like, one of the many. That I, I think, think any, any mother needs to know she can do that if it is yeah. for the benefit of her child without causing any harm. Um, and I yeah. think all the rules that you and I both broke, it was truly like the golden rule. It was to bring about healing and not cause harm. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, good for you. Good I'm for you. you. Good, good for you. 
not that I ever wanted to be able to say, wow, let me tell you some great thing I did. I, you know, we wish that we may not have had any of these chapters, but yeah, that would fuller, we, but we do. Yeah. There were two things you did say around antidepressants and narcotics. I do think that's a, a large issue that I would like to hear your comment on. And then I'll ask you one, one final question about okay. Tyler. The antidepressant piece, we visited that at the first hospital at St. Anthony's, and they automatically just put him on the drug. And I say, he's not depressed. He doesn't want to be on an antidepressant. And it's making him psychotic. It's making him see things that aren't there. And then... Which which you would have only known because you were bedside, like I was. Exactly. Another huge piece for parents. There were two nights that Michael and I did not spend the night in the hospital those first three weeks. And on both of those nights, they put him back on the drug while we weren't there. Exactly. We had one. We had one. I came unglued when I walked back in the room because I immediately could tell in his. At one point, it caused him. um, He thought he was in a video game. And so he was telling everybody that he was going to kill himself because he would respawn. And when he responded, he wouldn't be paralyzed anymore. And so he would sit there and he would hold his breath, which for me, I'm a realist. And so I'm like, you can't kill yourself by holding the breath. But it was freaking out the nurses and the people in the room because he was talking about, I'm just going to kill myself. And then he would hold his breath and his body would start to shake. And so they would get irritated with me. And I was like, Tyler, you've got to, honey. You've got to stop. I would, but that's what they cost. That's what them not listening to me advocating for my child. And when we got to Shepherd, and um, I forgot what her name is, the psychiatrist that was there, but the blonde lady, she had talked about putting him on antidepressants, and he was adamant. He's like, I don't, I'm not depressed. I don't want to be on them. They don't do well with my system. And it took a little while, but I said, okay, you have to prove it to them, honey. You have to go in there and you have to show them that you don't need this. I will 100% back you up, but I'm not here all the time. So you have to prove it to them. And he did. And so he didn't have to be on them. Yeah, that, that, little, um, that short little blonde, I think that <laughs> we, we were in the same similar situation and it was almost driving a wedge between Archer and me with her convincing Archer that he needed this, it would make him better, he would feel better, et cetera. And I, of course, I know that depression is very real. But when he would tell me, I don't want to be on any drugs, and Archer did not have any ability to speak. So this was still either these faint whispers, blinking of his eyes, using an ABC board, and then these one-to-one conversations that, of course, I wasn't privy to because it was between him and she called herself, you know, the counselor. But indeed, it was a very strong-handed additional narcotic from others that they had him on. Like, uh, they put him on Remron to speed up his system so he'd be hungrier on his own. There was just a number. And then when we finally won the battle... He had already been put on, and the three weeks then that he was on after we then won the narcotics battle, 
the the battle had really then just begun because it was then to wean him off. And I had no idea that it takes almost two times as long to wean someone off of narcotics. As your body gets used to it. Yeah, as your body gets used to it. I, I don't have a lot of patience when I get to certain points and, and I just go right at people. And so I just went right at them and I said, look, he's already proven it to you. He's already said he doesn't want it. I've said he doesn't want it. So here's how we're going to solve the problem. Um, he's not going to go to therapy anymore. And then he just didn't go to therapy anymore and it wasn't an issue. Yeah. Thank goodness you were by his side. Yeah. As, as his advocate. In, in those moments, I validated him as a person. Yes. And in those moments, he knew that I trusted what he said was best for him. And if he couldn't, if people weren't going to listen to him, I was going to make the world stop so that they did. And now he gets to carry that forward. Yes. And he have that skill in his life. I hope so. I learned to get out of the way. And to once Archer was able to then speak again, which was about six or seven months later, the whispers. Yeah, it was, oh, it was amazing. I still have the video of when he spoke again. <laughs> you do? Yeah. Well, I was wondering when you mentioned for Tyler how he was a chatty person and when he was not able to be chatty because of either being intubated or not being able to have his voice, where he had his voice before he went into the surgery and he came out without a voice, but you did a workaround. What was the workaround? Um, he clicked. So did Archer. Yeah. And then he would spell words out and he was still super chatty. I remember to one, one of his aunts, um, and she's a nurse and she's fantastic and lovely and amazing, but he was so irritated because she couldn't pick up as quickly as the rest of us could his new language. And he literally said to her, give the board to somebody else. You don't know what you're doing. And I felt so bad for her, but that's his humor. What what was your board? Tell us about your board. It was just the alphabet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And he would do, I think it was two clicks for a vowel. And then you would go through the vowels. And when he clicked, that's when you would stop. And then he would do one click. Is Tyler mathematical? No. Because Archer's very mathematical. And he he would just create systems. On on the other side of our ABC board... Which, which, by the way, oh my gosh, how simple is an ABC board? So our Blink right. and I navigator team, we're going to like a SWAT team. We call it the heel team. We're going to fly to the families who call us, stay a day and a night with them and bring a Blink of an Eye ABC board, a Blink of an Eye journal and a Blink of an Eye blanket because the rooms are so freezing cold because oh. our sons have to have it like 45 <laughs> degrees in the room. And, yeah. and we're going to you know make contact and be their advocates so that they know that we are there for them. And then we will, while we will swoop out, we will be very connected through a heart thread. Yeah. But, but this idea of telling families, here's an ABC board, let your, let your son, usually your son or your daughter or your husband or your, you know, your family member, figure out how to create shortcuts. One shortcut for us was we wrote on the other side of the board some of the most common needs that Archer had around like, like shift me or, or, or could you get me this or move that because the regular ongoing ones are, you know, hair right. in my face. 
And so it was more like he would, he had a certain way he'd blink his eye, which was to turn the board around. And then we would just go one, two, three, four, and he would go right to whatever one it was. I don't remember how many we had, maybe 10. (laughs) So, you know, they create their own. It's really quite remarkable. I mean, that's humans have figured out how to communicate. Yeah. 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 And I mean, Tyler was not going to not talk. Yes. That's just what the point is. Right. He was so chatty. I love that. So he was, yeah. So he just wanted, he needed us to get on board. Come on, faster. Let's go. I I got things I want to say. I love it. I love it. What a great kid. I've never met him. I hope that I do. And I am just so thrilled to hear about his, what will now be at some point, maybe in New York, but this amazing opportunity that he is part of. Is he still wanting to be, or is he a screenwriter? Well, he is a screenwriter. He, um, nobody has bought any of them yet, but he has had um, a number of studios ask for his stuff. Two of the studios specifically have said, we love your stuff. Unfortunately, the things that he had submitted, they already had something in the works that was too similar to it. Wow. So they hey, the next time we open up and we need stuff, we want to come back to you, work on something new, and maybe, you know, we can take it. So they like the way he writes and they like what he writes. They just already had something in development that was similar to what he had written. So, but he's also getting into the DEI field. Wow. Wow. Which how perfect. Amazing. Yeah. I think people don't think about it as it relates to our boys with quadriplegia. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel really good in that. He started his own website. He's uh, done some consulting already. There have been a number of people that have talked to him about wanting him to start doing some speaking. So not, not just the screenwriting. The screenwriting is his heart, that's his passion, but helping other people to understand, as he puts it, the otherness, and to be inclusive of otherness. Well, that's, so he, of course, at the heart of the diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Yeah. Belonging. Yep. yep, exactly. He's like, you know, because he was really, like, like I'm sure Archer was, and like Cole was, a really popular kid. Yeah, and exactly. A lot of He got lot along friends. with everybody. And then all of a sudden became paralyzed and it was everybody's worst fear. And so he didn't lose his friends, but they stopped coming around. Likewise. And when he was then, he was on the outside looking in, Yeah, you know? It's hard and when there's no place to go. Maybe yeah. a couple bars, but that's, you know, that's what you want to do. And, you know, right. and you're at the different height. If everybody's standing, you're not the right height. Everybody's at a table, you're at a higher height. You know, your voice isn't that strong. Um, yeah, all, exactly. these, all these real life mm-hmm. issues. And, and in his mind, he's still that six foot two, six foot three gangly kid that was just having fun playing ball and hanging out with his friends. So he was about six foot three, you mentioned when he was injured, yeah. which was Archer as well. And Tyler has grown four inches. Wow. Yeah. Archer's grown one. Yeah. He's 6'4". Well, but Tyler's 6'7". Yeah. Holy smokes. So nothing fits him. Wow. You know, chairs aren't made for somebody that tall. Standing frames. Cars. Yeah. I mean, there's only one car that we can have. And we have to get, you know, the floor dropped as low as it can go. Is it the Ford? It, it, no, it's the... Uh, 
Grand Caravan. Yeah, yeah yes. we've we've got the Ford version of that. Yeah, with the with the drop floor and the very high ceiling because arch are so long in the torso. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As hard as it is, because I know it is, we too are still up many nights, sometimes all night, with yeah. spasms, autonomic dysreflexia, just so uncomfortable. And Arch- Archer says it's worse in bed because it's like being in a coffin. Yeah. Um, where he really, at least in his chair, he has the ability to have you know his voice on Siri or to be splinted with his shoulder to get yeah. to an iPad. But it's really the journey that doesn't really end. It just has these new chapters. But I love yep. that you have these opportunities to reconnect and really be with Tyler. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's exhausting sometimes. Yes. Um, Physically. But, but yeah, but uh, I couldn't imagine it any other way. You know, I go visit his brother Thomas once a month, too. You know, different mm-hmm. reasons. Yeah, or different things that we do, but I would be connecting with Tyler once a month anyway. It's just a more intensive. More intensive. Yeah, yeah, that's a really beautiful way of looking at it. You're ahead of us. I love the wisdom for any family who has experienced spinal cord injury to know that it's at least 10 years to recalibrate. I thought it was five, but I was a cockeyed optimist per usual. I wouldn't redo that. It's just sobering to know right. that there really is at least another five to really kind of figure out who you are and how you're going to be in the world. And for all of us, and with one of my, my oldest son today in New Jersey, he was just recently engaged and my middle son was married last weekend. And my, wow, that's awesome. It's really awesome. And my youngest son, I'll, Go visit him next week. He's at UVA. So okay. it's, it is still, you know, just spending time with each, but it's just a more intense, elongated, different kind of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh my goodness. Mom to mom, soul to soul connector. Thank yes. you for all the reaching out that you did with me, all those calls in the absolute middle of the night. All the advocacy, all the I've been there, all the telling me I was okay for breaking rules, for asking for things that they said they couldn't do. Thank you for all of that. It was my pleasure. I'm glad that it meant something to you, that it touched you, and that it helped you. It did. And your family. And our family. Yeah. Thank you, Kim, for reminding us all of the importance of having a grounded, wise, and experienced ally on any arduous medical and emotional journey, especially one like spinal cord injury, with all its unforeseen and unfamiliar circumstances. 
your presence and advice to me during Archer's early days and weeks of recovery was priceless and in many ways gave me the inspiration to do the same for other SCI families who are experiencing their worlds turned upside down in the blink of an eye. If you or someone you know experiences an SCI-related tragedy, seek out I See That and the Blink of an Eye nonprofit as a resource, an essential resource to navigate the crisis. Blink of an Eye's trained team of navigators offers support to families in the critical first days of SCI. Blink of an Eye will deploy their HEAL team to each family bedside in the golden hours of initial injury and provide their team of navigators for support and SCI tips and how-tos thereafter for 30 days. You, our listeners, can be part of the Blink of an Eye prayer warriors for these families, or the Blink of an Eye hope lifters, who send SCI families letters of encouragement during the acute, life-changing, traumatic time. Blink of an Eye is changing the SCI experience for families and medical teams across the United States on the front end of crisis. Join us next time at Ask Louise. Remember, anything you are wondering about how to navigate the spinal cord injury crisis, you can ask Louise, and I'll bring the wisdom of others to the conversation. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Love heals trauma. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Louise series. Listen in next week for the next Blink of an Eye story episode, episode 19, Boot Camp Rehab. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and following. And thank you for telling your friends about Blink of an Eye podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.